All right, everybody, welcome to another developer cast here on the Game Wisdom YouTube channel. I am still Josh Bice, and we got a great one for you tonight. We're going to be discussing the development of the game Nowhere Profit, a single-player kind of deck-building roguelike with a lot of very interesting designs that was developed over five years. And my guest tonight is the designer from uh, Shark Bomb Studios. So please welcome to the cast, Morin Nurkar. Hey, everyone. Hi, Morin. It is great to have you on. How are you doing tonight? Um, I've complained to you before, but I'm happily do it again. I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> I know that it, it can be very tiring uh, being a solo developer, as we were just chatting about there. The life of a developer yeah. never ends, right? Yeah, yeah and that, like launch is just sort of the start of, of, of the madness. So. Yes, yes it is. But it's great to have you on, and definitely congratulations on releasing Nowhere Profit. For people watching this right now, the game came out, I think, about, has it been about like a week or two weeks since launch? It's been two and a half weeks or something. Like, it's been Friday um, two weeks ago, so. Okay. Two weeks and some change. <laughs> yeah, and now the post-release begins, I know. <laughs> yeah. But... It is great to have you on, and uh, for people watching this live or recorded, if you have any questions for Morin about Nowhere Profit, uh, feel free to get them in in the comments. But uh, we're going to see about, we'll be going for at least, I'd say, 45 minutes from now. We'll see how long Morin can last. Uh, we can, uh, for people who are new, we can sometimes go very long with these casts, and either I run out of steam or a developer. So we'll see what happens for this discussion. But... I'm doing my best. <laughs> but we certainly have a lot to talk about with the game, especially with it being developed for five years. So uh, to get things started with, since this is your first time on the cast, could you talk a little bit about kind of your background in the game industry and what is Nowhere Profit for people watching? All right. I mean, so my background in games is sort of... Um, I've always made games. I started doing uh, mods for Quake 1 and stuff mm -hmm. way back when. Um, so that's kind of where it all started. Um, then I actually got an architecture degree and then sort of moved into the games industry because I didn't want to do architecture. I wanted to do games. That was uh, over 10 years ago. So uh, I've been doing this for a while. I spent a bunch of time in some companies doing game design and level design. And then ended up going indie eight, eight years ago. Freelance and indie. Uh, made a bunch of smaller mobile games with a friend. Um, and then sort of got to work on our profit, which ended up bigger uh, and badder than it that was originally meant. I was, I was planning on doing two years, uh, ended up being five. Um, that's just how it goes, I guess. Um, especially if you have high high aspirations and sort of a big mm -hmm. lofty goals. Yeah. And Noah Prophet is um, uh, he said a roguelike deck building game that that hits the nail on the head. But I mm. kind of moved away from saying deck building because it's not the super known word. So I kind of end up saying it's a it's a roguelike single player card tactics <laughs> game mm -hmm. because that sort of you know hits hits a broader, more understandable sort of target i guess so that's what it is it's a it's a single player roguelike tactics game set in a post-apocalyptic dust punk science fiction world inspired by indian aesthetics and culture mm. there we got all the buzzwords in there there you go perfect and yeah like playing it like it's just very fascinating the number of mechanics or the different systems at play here and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on and I think what's kind of funny is that, like, up until, like, this year, we didn't see, like, too many games that kind of focus on, like, uh, the core building or the tactical layer like that. And then earlier, we got Slay the Spire and now Nowhere Profit. So I've been, like, very happy in terms of these designs this year. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's been, like, I, I think you can probably trace 
Slay the Spire and Nova Prophet back to Dream Quest, which came, oh god, five, six years ago on iOS. It's a super uh, not really well-known game, but it sort of did the first roguelike deck building I can remember. Um, and it became the sort of designer's darling in, in sort of the circles I, I moved in. And it's a really good game. It's visually very its own thing, I guess. Um, but it's a really well put together thing. And now, then it just, I guess the, the genre just sort of culminated and bubbled. Like I've been working on Noah Prophet, I said, five years. So, I mean, I probably started simil- similarly to like the Slay the Spire people. Like came, I think Slay the Spire ended early access like two years ago, two and a half years ago. Um, so we, I guess we sort of, you know, bubbled up in parallel and sort of, and now it's coming to the forefront. And I think with the success of Slay the Spire, uh, there's going to be more sort of clones and sort of yeah. Me Too's going to happen and some good incarnations as well that are just sort of like a new spin on a thing. So oh, I'm, I'm curious as well. Oh, yes, for sure. I recently got a, ch- a chance to try out the uh, deck building RPG from Clay that they're doing, Grifflins. Mm, yeah. So. Now, I, I've seen it um, at a friend and it's uh, it, it was super funny to me because the thing that Grifflins does which is do physical and social combat with the same combat system, which is a card system, Yeah, is what I originally wanted to do for Noah Prophet, but ended up scrapping because I'm a one-man team and it just was too much. Um, and then the game sort of shifted and moved away from it. But it's uh, it's funny that they sort of came to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's always like that very weird thing about game development, especially with a lot of independent developers kind of looking at similar games or similar inspirations, that they can go in very wildly different directions from that same core. Yeah, I mean, that's just uh, sort of, uh, I mean, I, as independent game developers, we're sort of inspired by what our colleagues are doing, mm-hmm. necessarily, I think. Many of us sort of look at what's, ha- what's happening, what's interesting, and sort of play that and go like, oh, awesome, this is fun, I want to build something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, not the same thing, but something like this, and that's, I guess, sort of where where this comes from. Now, uh, for people watching us, either live or core right now, where are you located, like, in terms of, like, your studio? Um, I'm located in southern Germany. Okay. Uh, one Which question. The, the time difference in uh, looking out of your window and out of mine, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one question I always like to ask when we have international guests on, like, how is like the uh, game dev scene in Germany? Um, I think it's pretty healthy. Like, there's a solid amount of indies. Oh God, I don't know. Ga- German games are tricky because they. Um, there's been a lot of sort of like looking at sort of bigger studios. There's um. A bunch of times that sort of German games were were very popular or sort of had their niche that sort of worked. Uh, but as a whole, the industry sort of, the German industry always struggles getting sort of international acclaim, sort of having sort of mega hits. Um, like people know Crisis or like Crytek. That's, that's something, you know, that's from Germany. Yeah. Um, and then there's a bunch of other, like a lot of simulation games, sort of like builder games, like Settlers. That's sort of a German brand or like Anno. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's sort of, that's sort of, I think there's a, a little bit of like an... Um, inferiority complex in the German games industry in that regard. So they're like, oh, we want to be the big boys too. Um, and that's for the indies. I think there's a sort of a healthy mix of a lot of different things. Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Like I've, I've been co-organizing sort of a, a, a German indie game community thing. Um, and I just think there's a lot of people that do interesting stuff. I, I don't know. I think it, feel, it feels healthy. That's sort of, it's sort of concentrated in, in places like Munich and Berlin that are sort of like bigger um, Hamburg, Frankfurt, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if that answers the question. I ended up rambling a bit here. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I've heard of Crisis. I've been a big fan of like Anno, Settlers, Blue Bite for a while now. But yeah. yeah, it's always interesting again about how much, how different like the various countries are in terms of game development, especially like what genres 
tend to blow up there. Like I've spoken to a few developers. What? The, the Germans seem to be very focused on sort of simulationist yeah. approaches, like uh, building games and like lots of numbers and um, <laughs> oh, kind of yes. that's kind of our thing. The uh, min-maxing is strong there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always fascinating when we have international guests on, kind of talk about where things have gone in terms of game development. And like I'm trying to think of some of the other guests that we've had. Like I don't think I've actually spoken to anyone else from Germany. I know we've spoken to uh, Poland, uh, Switzerland, uh, India, and Africa. So I think you may be my first uh, German guest, or I'm sure somebody watching may be able to correct me if I'm wrong on their one. I've I've spoken to so many developers that I've lost track at this point on my list. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Yeah. But uh, getting back to Nowhere Profit then, um, there's definitely a lot to go over with in terms of design. So I guess to begin with... As we've said, like you started working on this game back in 2014. Um, I guess what was like the original concept for the game, or where did it come from when you first started designing it? Well, it's, it's sort of the first prototypes were this uh, me looking for a, a conflict resolution system that was um, divorced from from the content, uh, okay. which is what I kind of spoke to briefly with that clay. Yeah. Like I wanted to have a conflict system that could manage combat and social situations, and this the core idea came from sort of the final fight of Mass Effect One where you meet Saren and you can get to convince him to sort of not fight against him. Um, at least, you know, skip one of the boss phases, which I, as, as a player, really enjoyed. But I didn't like that it sort of, these sort of moments where you can navigate around conflict by being, you know, a nice person, um, meant I lost out on some of the cool gameplay, boss fight. Um, and I hated that, that it sort of doing the good thing <laughs> cheats yourself out of the fun. Yeah. Um, so I wanted a combat system that could do both where convincing someone and beating them to a pulp was equally fun. And I played around with timing-based mechanics in the beginning because they, they're sort of abstract, simple, um, and could do either. You know, when do I interject or when do I shoot? Um, and then sort of from there, ha- added cards to it and then ended up scrapping the real-time part and had some had a card-based system that could do both, uh, which was interesting. And then sort of... Um, was sort of the, the initial sort of kernel from which the Nova Profit changed over time. Okay. I always find that fascinating when we talk about like being able to like have like these abstracted takes on like on another system. Again, like having like the idea of a quote unquote conversational battle. Like the first mm-hmm. time I remember that was from I think it was Deus Ex uh, Human Revolution when you had like those kinds of like, like negotiations. I'm sure there's other examples yeah. out there. And yet it's always like fascinating to me when we see like developers try to abstract something like that that you normally don't see because like you were saying there like with the mass effect example i can think of something like the fallout example as well from the first game where you can convince like the boss to, like kill himself that it's a great idea to give the player those options but in the same breath you're basically as you said it kills like the gameplay loop there like you don't have to fight them but then you do nothing else like it just ends that fight and yeah. i know it's definitely very hard, I feel. I'm sure, like, as you no doubt uh, found as you were developing, like, the first concept for the game, trying to, you know, abstract, like, conversational battles like that. So, I guess, uh, what was, like, kind of, like, the war? Like, where did it kind of go, like, a little bit too much, or a little too much out of your scope when you're designing that system? Well, it's sort of, it, the system by itself sort of worked. You had some damage, and you had armor, and you had sort of attacks that were, like, insult or something, um, with, like, different stats. And that sort of worked. I'm, uh, as a system, 
And I felt it was fun. I always wanted them to sort of add like text bubbles and sort of giving context to these actions. You know, having like a pool of stuff they can pull out and based on the enemy, the insult sort of has different voice lines. Um, mm-hmm. well, rather text because voice is expensive as an indie. Um, and I really, really liked the idea. And I, I, I'm not sure if I have a screenshot somewhere of like the early prototype with like the cards and the, mm-hmm. the simple names. But um, I ended up scrapping it because I sort of for two reasons. One is, um, I when I had sort of this core combat system, I thought about what do I want to use this for, and this is sort of where where Prophet Dust Punk World came from. Uh, but I all from the start knew I wanted you to be responsible for people. I didn't want this to be a sort of loner going through the desert kind of thing. Um, I wanted you to have sort of in the beginning it was a party, so it meant you had multiple people with multiple decks. Um, and then each of these people having multiple decks for combat and social combat ended up being just sort of very cluttered. Um, and the fact that I, you know, making a card game is hard. Making two card games at the same time <laughs> is even harder. So I did the reasonable thing and sort of scrapped it early on in development. Okay. Even though I, I was sad to do it, but I it was the right choice. Yeah, it can be very tough sometimes when you have to scrap these ideas like that, especially if it's one of the original ones you came up with for the design of the game. Yeah, and it, it's doubly hard uh, sort of if you're a solo dev uh, because there's nobody pushing back. Like, yeah. I, I sort of, I do a lot of things uh, on the project, um, but at my heart, I'm a designer. So design ideas and doing something innovative and something different uh, is really interesting to me. And I spent a, a couple months in the project sort of chasing an interesting travel and map mechanic. I spent like two months or three months iterating and prototyping and concepting um, something that's not the map that we have now. This is the thing I started with. I was like, nah, this isn't good enough. And then I went off searching and ended up with, all right, I have a bunch of interesting ideas, but none of these click for Nova Profit. So let's go back to the initial one. So I spent a bunch of time um, not going anywhere, I guess. Um, I still want to do some of these ideas at some point in something, maybe. Um, but this is something that somebody else could have sort of interjected and gone like, hey, do we really need to spend a lot of time on this? But for me, it was like, oh, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sort of hard to figure out where to draw the line and go like, nah, yeah. it's good enough. Yeah, and especially when, like, as you said, like, when it is your, like, was this like your, fir- was Nowhere probably kind of like your first, like, main game you made by yourself? Yeah, man, yeah. it's the first sort of game of that size I did by myself. Yeah. And like as I've spoken to other developers too, like who've gone like the solo dev route or spending like multi years working on a single game like that, and it's very easy to kind of get stuck in that. I want to do something cool and amazing. Let me spend two, three months on it. But then something else cool and amazing mm-hmm. comes on. Let me spend another three months on that. And then all of a sudden, yeah. as you say, like it goes from two years to then five years. Like nobody realized how fast it just went. Yeah, and like if you've spoken to a bunch of solo devs, how many of them tell you after the first big project that they're never gonna do it again? Yeah, or they'll say like, "I never want to work in this style," or you know, "This will never happen again." Like, I'm done with this kind of game. I'm gonna do something simple for my next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely where I am. So mm-hmm. I've, I've sort of I spent five years of my life making this game. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of it full time, but a large chunk of it. Yeah, I'm very focused on the game. It, it consumed a lot of my time and thoughts and blood and sweat and tears. Um, and I'm sure the sort of developers for which making a game by themselves is, is good is something that works for them. Yeah. But yeah, I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm co-organizing sort of communities. I do a lot of local events and stuff yeah. because I'm a very social person and making a game by myself is just, is just the worst for me. It's just a terrible idea. <laughs> um, so that's never going to happen again. Um, and I think that's something you just have to learn, I guess. Yeah. 
And like I've talked to other developers about this, like there is no one, you know, true path to game development. There's no perfect way to make a video game. And I we could I could certainly regale you with the many stories I've heard from other developers about how they've created their games in all manner of different places and situations. But uh, bringing this back to Nowhere Profit, one thing that I wanted to touch on with you, Martin, is the art style for the game. What kind of, mm-hmm. like, I I recognize, like, the kind of style, the aesthetic that you chose, but I don't know the name of it. Like, what was, like, the name of, like, the actual, like, style for, like, the character design and just the overall look of the game? I don't think there is a name for it. Um, we, like, me and Anjan, who did a lot of, uh, who, who helped me uh, with the art and the art direction, who's a freelancer and a friend of mine, we sat down in the beginning of the project and I guess we worked on this thing for like three months, sort of fiddling the art style while I was building systems, and we did a lot of sort of Skype calls, a lot of concepts, a lot of back and forth. There's a bunch of the sort of the work we did in the in the art book, mm-hmm. um, and we we played around with some 3D um, ideas because I really I'm I'm a big fan of sort of low poly style, which I'm sort of looking at the games that have come out since and are sort of still in the pipeline. I feel like my taste was on the mark because it's mm-hmm. gotten just gotten more popular. Um, Still want to do something like that at some point. Um, and we tried around some, and we ended up with the style we have now, um, which is very inspired by graphic novels, actually. Like, um, one sort of, you know, sort of point of inspiration that sort of around which it sort of congealed is, um, uh, Mike Mignola from Hellboy. He has a very distinct style with very dark and black sort of mm-hmm. pools of shadow, and then sort of the, the character sort of emerge the points of light emerge from this sort of pool of blackness, and this sort of very hard change between light and shadow was something that sort of spoke to us because it's, it's very expressive it's it's uh, it's a cool style uh, but i knew i wanted something colorful like there's something from the very very beginning uh, i knew i want to make a, a, a sort of a post-apocalyptic world but i didn't want to have it brown or just all brown i wanted to, it to be very colorful and the style would have to sort of mm. ooze this from everything so sort of all right pitch box shadows and then very colorful and then um if you look closely, there's a lot of texture on the on the uh, on the artwork. Like there's this pitch black sort of edgy shadow. Yeah. Um, there's sort of like edged um, silhouettes, which is like, uh, comes from our experiments with low poly. Like a lot of the characters are all like edges, not round. Yeah. Um, and then there's textures on the on the artwork, sort of to you know, sort of grit and grime to sort of bring over the post-apocalyptic bitch. So it's not uh, just clean lines and everything is perfectly, you know. Yeah vectorized so it's been a little bit smudgy a little bit uh um dirty and that's sort of how this thing came. yeah it definitely has like that graphic novel like almost like that hand-drawn look to it as you said with like again like very sharp lines it doesn't mm. look like a polygon look that we see from a lot of video game based game or a lot of video game styles like more rounded yeah. and rounds and stuff like that yeah it's sort of it's sort of a it's a mix between very hard edges and very sort of precise black shadows and this very precise rim light. And then in between, um, hand-painted colors and sort of uh, textures and stuff. Yeah. Now, um, focusing a little bit more on the design, or getting back to the design of Nowhere Profit, there's, again, like, there's a lot of systems at play here in terms of you have the map system, as we talked about earlier, the deck-building side, of course, combat. That certainly gives me a lot of, like, meat to go over for this cast. So... Mm -hmm. I guess let's see if we can try and I want to see if we can try and go in like order in terms of when these systems are introduced. So uh, let's start with the map system and then we'll kind of work our way forward. So as you were saying earlier, you went through different iterations of how you want the player to move through it. 
And I guess, what was kind of like the original vision for, I guess, traversing the map? Um, I mean, the original sort of early prototype was the map similar to what it is now. Okay. Um, it took me a while to sort of get the, um, once I sort of, you know, I had this initial one, I was like, oh, I want to do something special, fiddled around for a couple of months, hated everything, threw it away, went back to the map. And then it took some time to sort of figure out how the generator works. Like, how do I, how my, many connections do I want to have? How long are the maps? I'm still not entirely sure if the length of the maps is quite there. I'm shortening them a tiny bit just recently to sort of speed up the, the run time as well. Um, but I mean, the core idea was I wanted this sort of travel system be where you take care of the convoy, where you sort of, you know, meet this world, sort of talk to people, manage some research. Um, and because it's a post-apocalyptic world, it should be a, sort of a constant drain, sort of like often you cannot sort of there's not always an easy out. There's not always sort of a, a perfect answer. You'll just sort of lose people. You'll lose. It's going to be a, a difficult journey. And just to clarify, in terms of map generation, does it create like the same number of nodes or points of interest for each play, or does that vary based on the procedural generation? Oh, that, that varies. There's sort of um, a roughly similar amount. It starts with, but then sort of it generates different paths, and sometimes based on how they are sort of arranged, it might find more good paths and have more nodes in the final map. But there's sort of, there's outliers. You can have a map that has just sort of like 10, 12 nodes in a very sort of constrained small path, central path to um, sort of side paths, but then that's sort of, is it? Um, now, with the resource stream uh, you were just mentioning, was that system kind of in there from the beginning, or did you have to like iterate on, you know, what was the player going to lose, how much were they going to lose on each move, and things like that? I mean, there, there was a lot of iteration on that. Like, for example, early on, uh, the resources were hope and endurance, um, and then sort of I felt endurance and hope were both very abstract, so I wanted one of them to be more graspable, so it ended up being food and hope, which I still think is a very good combination. Um, or sort of just the theming of the resources. But yeah, the amount um, that you lose per step varied a bunch during development and then during the first access phase. Like in an early version, um, the amount of resources you spent was dependent on the amount of people you had, which sort of led to this weirdness that some players wanted to be effective. And if they had hired and found people they didn't want in their combo because they were never going to play them, they would put them in the deck in fights and just get them killed. So they had less people. Um, and that just sort of broke with the idea of, hey, you're a prophet. <laughs> yeah. You want to take care of these people. I don't want you to be pressured to kill them on purpose. I want you to be sad when you have to sacrifice them, not go like, ah, fuck you. I want you to go die <laughs> so I can, yeah. can, can be more efficient. And so that just went out the window really simply. And then I sort of figured, fiddled with sort of how much sort of things cost. Um, yeah, there was a lot of movement there. I still don't think it's entirely there. Like some runs, you just have way too much of everything, and some runs you're struggling. And I would like to pull it together a little bit so that the variance isn't that big. Um, it's, but it's that's just development. And that's always a nightmare of RNG as well, especially for anyone who's playing any roguelikes yeah, yeah. out there. And for people watching me, you know, my luck in a lot of roguelikes games tends to, tends to get me like screwed no matter what happens. You know, it's a nine percent chance it hit. I'll still miss. Like, that's just how it works for me. <laughs> but yeah. I actually want reminds me of my XCOM days. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Don't. Uh, we bring... I got an 80% chance to hit. Oh, yeah. I missed 95% chance in the Fraxis one. And that was a fun. Uh, it was a good thing that I don't scream while I'm streaming because I think I would have done that when that <laughs> happened live. 
But I actually want to stay on that point you just made there, more about kind of like trying to combine like the morality system with the gameplay, the min-maxing. Because that, I think, is a very unique struggle that we see with a lot of video games that tend to go for either having like morality choices or trying to get the player or trying to combine gameplay and those choices like that. Because in the beginning of the cast, when we're talking about a lot of the simulation and kind of strategy or number crunching games, we brought up the term min-maxing. And this has always been like a very weird, I guess like a, I'm not sure what the term I want to use, kind of, I guess like a conflict between design and storytelling. Because we've seen a lot of games try to combine morality and gameplay, but it always ends up either being very like gamey or very fake, or, as you were describing with your example there, it becomes a situation of min-maxing. Like, if it's if I get a 10% advantage by playing the game this way, then who cares about, you know, the choices there? I'm going to go with the, you know, the path that gives me the most options. And, like, to me, this is one of those things that I never really got into with a lot of the Bioware games, when they really played heavily into kind of morality choices over the last decade. And I just want to get, like, like, what are your thoughts on that when you're trying to balance like a morality choice with an with an explicit gameplay or game effect choice. I mean it's sort of difficult because it's actually a, I think a, a, a wide variety of sort of ways you can build this or you can sort of encounter these systems um, so one thing is especially in sort of a roguelike which you play over and over again um, and in games in general players will mean yes players will look for the best strategy that gives them the quickest and easiest win because games aren't for many of us that play are an optimization problem we want to be good at this we want to beat it we want to show how good we can do this um so it always ends up being um an optimization problem and it's sort of it's difficult because i mean a part of the game designer's job is fighting against that impulse like making a game where you cannot game yourself out of the fun like if there was one card in our profit that was super overpriced and super powerful, everybody would always take this card. No choice would matter. Yep. And you would just spam this card and win every fight and you'd be the best at playing the game, but it'd be fucking boring. Um, so that's something you sort of need to avoid as sort of a design. You need to push back. But at the same time, it's always there. Like mm-hmm. if I do morality choices, people will game them. Like they, people aren't stupid. Like they know that this is a game. So they know all right, if I do this, I get some points for this. If I do that, I may lose some points of that. Which one do I want to do in this run? I'm going to do yeah. And that's fine. It's, I still think it has some some repercussions. And I think sort of like morality choices feel a lot more strong if they're related to characters. You know, if it's not like an abstract sort of like, but there's always a sort of a criticism against, all right, you have happiness points or fate points or i don't know believer scholar altruist or like good points or evil points it's sort of these points always invite abuse and gamification sort of like all right i'm maximizing my points or all right i need 30 points that gives me these options so i'm just gonna go to 30 and then be an asshole to always yeah you know have around 30 um as soon as you have points this is sort of what will happen which is fine i guess uh, but if it's like around a character it's different, especially if the character also has game value, which sort of happens in the War Prophet sometimes. You go to an event, one of the people comes up and go like, oh, I can run a distraction. Um, there's a risk you may lose that person, but maybe that's a guy you're like, oh, I don't want to play you anyway, so go. <laughs> but then you're thinking as a game, that's sure. But also it might be somebody you've named after a friend and you like playing that guy. And then suddenly this sort of decision is still a game decision, but also a morality decision at the same time. And I think that's sort of when it starts to work. 
Um, mm-hmm. When sort of the game value and the morale, morality value sort of come together, um, and the decision isn't just uh, a number or just a, uh, you know, just a window dressing or just sort of end, changes the one option you have at the very end, yeah. but it sort of, it changes my game state in a measurable way. Um, but it's also a decision I sort of have to take about the, I mean, there's one sort of morality decision that is, that I think works really well in a profit. Um, and that's not one of these sort of classic pick, kick the puppy or feed the puppy, <laughs> um, decisions. Uh, but it's the wounds in yeah. the cards. And this is something I get some pushback on. So people are like, ah, oh, I don't want to lose my cards. And I'm like, yes, I don't want you to lose your cards. Feel pain. Um, that's integral to the, to sort of what Noah Prophet is to me. These people are your people. These people are your cards. You don't want to lose your cards. You don't want to lose your people. It sort of meshes the emotions together. So you feel bad for playing wounded people and for killing them. If you play enough, you'll go out of that and you just see them as tokens and then it's all fine. But the, I love this tension of, oh shit. Because if you play them wounded, they are, they're cheaper to play. So they have a lot of advantage. But if they die, they're dead forever. So do you bring in some wounded people? Maybe you have some wounded people you don't really like that much. And there's this fight. So you're like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to put some of these in. So just so I can uh, get some tempo and get away quickly instead of wounding some of my good guys. What does that say about mm-hmm. um and that's sort of interesting. I really, I really like that and what it does. And I think actually, sort of in hindsight, I've said this before, and I think the, the sort of the, um, the event system is like, I, I love every part of the game. I think everything is good. Um, but I think the event system is the, the weakest part of the game and the one I would have, would like to improve the most. Um, and sort of one thing would be to tie more of your people to events in sort of long form. So like, if you want to, if you know, one guy has some story and the story takes like, six seven events span off or sort of the, the journey but if you, he dies then story's gone maybe there's some you know it pops up again it's like oh he's dead i'm sorry uh we cannot do this there's some events like that um but i would like to have more of that um because that would also sort of um put in uh, more of this um gameplay morality at the same time because i oh i i i want to protect this guy because he's become a character but also because i want his story I want the content. Um, and that'd be cool, but there's, you know, you gotta, as, as a one man show, you gotta make some compromises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like with, uh, I want to stay on that point for a second, but getting back to what you're saying in terms of trying to combine like the gameplay choices with your morality choices, I like that. Uh, as you were saying a few minutes ago, XCOM is probably one of the best examples of this, especially the modern ones for Praxis. Because I've seen people, they will design their characters. You know, they'll make them out of friends, family, whatever. They'll make a highly personalized or customized take. And then they're going to feel very badly when they miss that 95% shot and they get sniped by a sectoid or a mudden. And that's always been like one of the more fascinating points. I'm glad you brought up, again, uh, I'm glad you started talking about the wound system and Nowhere Profit. Because I thought that was a really great one as well, especially when you combine that with the deck building side. And I think that's probably the perfect segue into talking more at more in depth about it. So, I guess uh, getting back to your last point there about having like the characters represent or the cards representing characters or vice versa. I guess I'm not sure if you thought about this. Like, where did it start? Like, did you think about your people as cards or do you think about your cards as people like in terms of like, your overall thought process well i mean it's sort of um go back to sort of answer this question 
first prototype of normal profit was this sort of abstract conflict resolution system, card system. Um, and the card system was very similar to what Slate Aspire does. Cards were actions. They weren't something that ended up on the board. We had multiple people, each with their own deck, and then it was attack card, defend card. That kind of it was a party-based, multi-deck, multi-enemy sort of system. Um, and after sort of like two years of fiddling with it, I or like after like a year or one and a half years of fiddling with it, I noticed that it just wasn't there. Like the, the core combat system was um, really good and was a lot of fun, but it didn't mesh with the rest of the game. Uh, one of the issues was that uh, um, in sort of um, the early versions, you had these sort of heroes that you had in combat, but your followers were just a number. And that sort of never sat right with me because, as I said before, if it's just a number, it's a resource you can game with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was unhappy with that and ended up... Um, taking a break and then sort of redoing the entire combat system. I was looking for um, something where sort of the cards you played stuck around longer because that would allow uh, more interesting combinations to occur. Um, it would allow me to put more variation in the combat, which is where the grid and the obstacles come from. So the different obstacles can make different scenarios and different every fight is a little bit different based on where the obstacle, which obstacles are present, sort of changes your tactics. You don't always play the same cards in the same order because, oh, there's this thing here. How do I fiddle with it um and out of that idea then i had all right i want to put people on the board wait i have followers bam problem solved kind of um and that's where this sort of new get combat system that i put in i was super convinced that i was going to do bunch of testing that was one of the big problems it's, it made my followers from being a number a crunchier thing you play with okay and like uh, with like trying to make Again, like your followers have more of a personality, your cars having more of a personality. Did you do any playtesting in terms of, I guess, customizing the cards further? Like, I know in the game right now, you have, like, when a character wins, like, or when a car wins, they'll get kind of like that, that blessed state where they'll gain a little extra stats. Yep. Was there anything further in terms of, like, attaching, like, gear or giving them, like, personality traits or things like that? I, I had a lot of ideas and thoughts, ended up not doing them because i was doing enough already and sort of you know the new combat system came in after working on the game for two years so i was not gonna go super crazy and do my three months oh let's you know innovate on this thing too much i was like all right i have something that works fine um now i need to still need to do all the good content um so i decided not to do some weird fancy things like that also it always always gave me the impression that it would be too micromanagey you know, you already have to manage your deck, and you have to manage your other deck, because I sort of wanted these two decks separate. Um, but then if every card you need to manage in detail, that'd be, I think that'd be too much. I, I think there would have been room for something I, I had in mind, as sort of like a veteran feature. Like if this guy survives for a while, he ranks up, and sort of has better stats. And the idea was also behind that, that um, the people that stick with you for a while stand out. And you don't want to lose them because, you know, they've, you've, they've, you've been on this road for so long. Don't die, you know. Um, but it ended up just making the thing more complex in my head. So I never really uh, went there, I think. At least I don't really. Okay. Uh, Viking Fabi- Fabian in chat asked this question. I think we may have kind of touched on this earlier. You may have missed it. But how can you love a game you worked for five years on? <laughs> um, I think there's such a thing called love and hate. Uh, love, hate. Um, uh I think you need to love it if you work on it for five years. Otherwise, why? Um, but that isn't to say that I didn't hate the game uh, in, in parts or in, during uh, certain periods. Um, but at this point, I'm just very, very proud of what it has become and, and of myself, sort of in a second degree. Um, I think it's a great game. I think the fact that a lot of people respond well to it uh, tells me that I d- d- made a lot of right decisions, which is good. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer the question? We'll see. 
Uh, while we're waiting for that, um, getting back to the wound system and kind of like the deck building side, like I thought, I think a lot of people will agree that it was very, it's a very fascinating dynamic tying again like your people to your cards and then as you saying earlier that very tough choice of do i take my best characters into this battle but they're wounded but can i win this battle without them and i'm sure as we've been discussing over the last what we up to like about 40 minutes into this cast like in terms of the play testing and the iteration that went into it were there any other versions of like the wound system or kind of losing your cards so many. <laughs> Better. Um, it started out with being four wounds. Okay. And every wound that Paolo took, he would have one less health just to okay. with. Uh, but that ended up being sort of too complex in the sense that you didn't care much because, ah, it's so many wounds, fuck it, just keep it in. Yeah. Um, And it also made it sort of looking at the cards in sort of the deck list difficult because... All these different slashes. You know, you have the same card five times with five different wounds. <laughs> uh, is it five times... It just, you know, clutters everything. Um, so I end up simplifying it to wound or dead. That, that just worked a lot better. And I played around a bunch with what uh, the wounded state actually does. Like, for a while, it um, only did... The wounded ca- card has one damage when it starts, which means it's just worse. Which means everybody who min-maxes would always remove all the wounded followers from the deck. Yeah. So they would never get into the tension of, you know, risking their followers because they were just worse off. So just don't. Um... So there needed to be something that made them, you know, tempting to play. Um, and then for a while they had plus one attack, but started with one damage um, to sort of go, oh, I'm wounded, but I'm a rage. So, you know, do I play him? He's, he doesn't have, he's not better now. He just has shifted stats. He lost one, gained one. Some followers that made that better, some made it worse, depending on stat line set and what sort of effect they had. Um, that was interesting, but again, sort of too conditional. And then at some point, I think it's sort of relatively late in the in the first access, I think probably a year after, I came up with a sort of one damage, because the one damage really sits well with sort of your wounded. It makes total sense that you don't start with full health. Um, mm-hmm. Also, combo's okay. nice with heal decks, and sort of you know, everything about that feels right. And then I added in that they are one cost cheaper, which um, actually makes them better. It makes them better because usually one cost is roughly two stat points. Uh, so he loses one stat point, but loses yeah. one cost, which means he gains one stat point. And that suddenly made them a lot more tempting to play, made them uh, a good choice to sort of put, push them, push them sort of like, um, you start at three energy. So cards that used to be four are suddenly three. They suddenly turn one place, which yeah. they didn't, didn't used to be before. So suddenly these cards become, you know, enter a different spectrum. And like one cost cards are zero cost cards. I can just play this guy for free. He's got an effect when he comes onto the board. He may die forever. Whatever. I'm going to get some shit for free. Yeah. Um, that sort of suddenly clicked and sort of made them into this tasty middle ground of, oh, they're better, but I risk them. And that's always like the very, in, that's always like the complications of when we talk about like deck building or CCG design, that just one change to a stat can just raggedly throw that card or that bounce completely out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like with Nowhere Profit being kind of focused on that style like tempo play, as every turn the amount of your energy pool goes up, you can, as you've probably seen, I'm sure as anyone who's played the game has seen, like you can get some very crazy combos going just by having that four cost card go down to three, or a five cost of four, or again, all your one cost down to zero. And and I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, I'm sure you spent a lot of time play testing and figuring out just how you wanted these cars to behave in this game. 
I mean, yeah, but it's sort of at the same time, I need to spend a lot of time developing, so I never get to playtest enough. Um, which is why I'm super dependent on, on sort of players to tell me what breaks and what does weird things I've never seen. Um, and I think just sort of like uh, the game was in early access, the first access for like one and a half years, which just so much changed. I did like two or three complete balancing passes over everything, changing every single stat line, every card, throwing out like 40 cards each time and putting in 40 new effects. Um, and that happened like two or three times based on player feed. And that was just made the whole thing a lot better. And Again, with a game like this, like even like minute changes to a card or changing how something behaves mm-hmm. can completely throw everything else out the window. And I guess like keeping with that point, in terms of like I guess like how the cards behave, like I've played the game at least like two or three times. I have not been nowhere probably, I can tell you that much right now. But what, what difficulty are you playing on? I think I'm playing on whatever's considered like the normal difficulty or like the balance one. Like I I know I'm not altering Burden, it. Probably. Yeah. And I did unlock the second faction. I've gone as far as I think three maps in. But uh one thing I want to ask you, in terms of like the powers or like card interactions, did that go through any major refinements or changes as you were developing the game? I, mean, I guess I mean I'm still fiddling with classes got a lot of change over time of cards with cards change and sort of disbalancing passes. Um I'm still sort of right now looking at one of the keywords, which I think um, is sort of problematic and need of a kick in the pants. Um, first strike. First strike units, when they attack, and deal enough damage to kill your opponent, don't take damage back. Uh, yeah. um, this does not happen when they are attacked, only when they attack. What this does is it makes these cards excellent at board control. They can yep. remove shit and not take any damage. But the problem is that the game is already very skewed towards board control. If you lose it, yes. so you need to, you know, hang on to it super tight. And I think it's the game's a little bit too unforgiving there. It sort of tightens the design space too much. So I kind of want to move, you know, push back against it a bit, which means First Strike needs to change because First Strike is one of the offenders. That's, there's a lot of sort of asp, you know, factors sort of power, that put pressure on the player that end up being board control and aggro is... So I want to change First Strike. I have a version up on, on the Steam beta branch right now which uh, exchanges First Strike or Stun Strike. Stun Strike means if this unit does damage to another unit, that unit is stunned. Um, this is suddenly a lot more. Dif- it's sort of similar in its in its sort of design space because a stunned unit does not do di- retaliation damage back. Um, the unit is stunned after it does retaliation damage back, so the stun strike unit um, cannot kill everybody because he takes damage. But then whoever he stunned may be taken out by somebody, which means you can use your small stun units to sort of crash them into a big unit, disable the big unit, and then, and then sort of kill the big unit for free. But then your stun unit does. Yeah. But at the same time, if you have a bunch of stun units in hand, you can plop them down, and if the enemy runs into them, he'll be stunned, giving you some room to sort of pull back and sort of gain more ground again. So it sort of feels like this is a good change. I sort of put it up today, so I don't know how it plays yet. I haven't even had time to play myself, besides some cursory testing. Um, but this feels like a change that sort of improves the keyword. It also works really well with sort of the faction it's assigned to, which is the Raj Guard, the sort of first strike units. And there's like, they're slavers, and they sort of have this very strict hierarchy of... And then it sort of makes sense because their they're, uh, cannon fodder guys get stunned right. You run them into the opponent, they die, doesn't matter. And then the big guys come in and clean up, which sort of fits the theme. So this sort of feels like a good change. Yeah. And stuff like that, I think, will still happen for a while. Like, um, there's some cards I don't like um, that I sort of, you know, getting a game released is so much work. Now I can sort of pull back and look at sort of the tiny thing I have time for. And there's a bunch of cards, I think, that aren't good. They never were good. They're just sort of like clutter um and i'm thinking of ways to make them more interesting 
One card is the worker. It's a one cost, one two unit that has nothing special. It is under uh, under statted. Like there's a one cost, one two with taunt, which is better in every way. Um, and that's fine. Like it's fine if there's units that are below curve that you just grow out. Um, but I want to make him a little bit more interesting. That there's some decks where he makes sense. So I have an idea for the worker, which would be one cost, one one. But when you put him on the board, you gain two armor, which makes sense because he's part of the Union faction, the armor effects. And suddenly he starts to make sense in some more defensive builds um, or in more armor-oriented builds. Suddenly, all right, the 1-1 then gives me two armor at the same time, that went in. Everybody else is still going to go, eh, don't need this. Um, but that makes it more of an interesting. Yeah. And there's stuff like this, like this Eye for an Eye, which is a terrible card that only the AI uses. Five damage to both leaders. It's not something that is fun to play against. Um, it's not something a player would ever put in their deck because for players, health is a main resource. So it's sort of this weird card like, that doesn't need to be there. There's a bunch of things that I, you know, I'm going to polish this thing. <laughs> yeah, the one that I ran into that was like causing me some of the fits was the poison effect. When I ran that for the first time, especially for we got the, uh, I think it was like the King Lizard or the Elite Lizard boss fight for the map too. Yeah, that's the King Lizard game. Oh yeah, that was fun to realize, wait a minute, this thing's just gonna like automatically kill like five of my guys. I'm like, oh no. Yeah, he's been, he's been nerfed a bunch. <laughs> uh, like in, in, it got a lot of flack for the bosses being too strong uh, just after launch. So sort of still see popping up and still sort of look into in the early version he he killed every unit that attacked <laughs> um now he only kills the first one each turn which is a really good sort of change for a bunch of reasons because suddenly it, it's it's a it's a skill you can counterplay you know you can just decide which one of the units will like kill so if i have like a bunch run the weakest one in eat up the buff and then just damage with everybody else. Um, and it becomes a lot more interactive to you as a player. Now, uh, getting back to kind of like, again, like the deck building side, and especially like, probably in t- as we've been talking a little bit more about the combat side of New Air Profit, one thing that I think I know the answer to this one, but I need to ask, with the overall like gameplay of the actual combat, it does, as we were saying earlier, it focuses heavily on kind of tempo and board control plays. I'm assuming that as you were iterating and playtesting, did the overall like scope of combat change in terms of its design over the early access and the beta of the game? What do you mean scope of combat? I guess like in terms of like the overall like the strategy, like we've seen deck building games that are focused on tempo. Like in Hearthstone, there are deck building games where it's more focused on like round control, like in Gwent, and then there's self. And there, again, there's as many different ways of having these systems as, you know, there's snowflakes mm-hmm. out there. But, like, with Nowhere Profit, did kind of, like, how somebody played, like, the actual card side of things change over the course of development? I mean, the, there were so many changes that I'm sure it did, mm-hmm. but it's been sort of sitting on the board control sort of okay. piece of the pie for a long time, which is because a, a, a sort of a large contributor to that is not the card game itself, the stuff around it. And the stuff around it hasn't changed that much. There's been a lot of changes, but the car, car has always been, you have a limited amount of resources, you travel, lose resources, and your health is one. Um, and you follow as a two. So that sort of means um, you cannot throw them away, either your health or your units, which means you need to control the board before your shit gets removed. This is sort of one of the pressures that leads to board control as the way to play. Because otherwise, um, like in Magic, you can play and you can win... How, how did it say? They say winning at one life and winning at 20 life is the same thing. So your own life is a resource, which you can do in a profit, but you'll bleed for it. Yes. Um, and this is something I want to, I said, sort of with looking at the first strike key, some other effects have been, I have a, I have a Discord. Everybody has a Discord. I have a Discord. <laughs> and I, I use Discord 
to ask design questions to my players to sort of get their their input and get some ideas and some inspiration. Um, and one thing I'm sort of thinking about because come up it's sort of something that I was sort of always been there, but if I'm getting a bunch of sort of high profile some people you know writing a lot about this problem, which gives me a new perspective. It's always board control. Is this a problem? And the, the, it is not a problem because it's how the game is and how the game sort of always will be. But it's a problem when it reduces the amount of uh, interesting decks to too small yeah. a corridor. Um, so I kind of want to push this up a bit. You know, stuff like um, it's easier to come back. Ideas that allow you to um, lessen the resource drain. Like I have a control build that allows you to have longer fight, but at the same time allow you to not lose a lot of resources. But at the same time, it needs to be a card or an effect that an aggro deck cannot use to be even better. Like an example would be something like the mirror mirror image from the Hearthstone Mage. A simple card that spawns a bunch of cheap jump blockers that don't take wounds because they're just construct. And that would be a way to sort of um, give some tools to slower decks to sort of keep the pain. I mean, I don't think I ever want to change the your cards take wounds and your health is a resource. Uh, your health health sort of is persistent. Um, I feel like these are integral to the mood in the world of No yeah. Profit. I'm taking them out would make it a vastly different game. So I'm currently hoping to put in enough interesting content. Um, maybe I'm not going to say anything that someone can hold against me, but I'm, <laughs> I have ideas for classes and maybe one of the classes could you know, have some interesting tools that go more towards a control build. I mean, one of the classes that's a tower, he already has a bunch of tools uh, for more control and more defensive. He's got like an armor, but he's got like a t- And these are interesting things he can do. Um, so currently, I kind of want to do use the content to widen the corridor, give more tools, you know, that fight against some of these problems and see if that's enough to sort of get out of, you know, make players feel like there's more... And if that doesn't do it, I don't know, maybe I'll have to revamp the armor system. Because initially, that was with armor was. Armor was... There's one part of health that regener- doesn't regenerate, that's your health. And there's one part of health that sort of resets every combat, which sort of an earlier version, the armor numbers were much, much higher. You had like six or eight armor to start the combat with. And armor just used to be so strong because of yeah. I pulled it down a lot and made it be something that you need to build up during the fight less than you start with. Because even aggro decks just go for big armor builds and then not worry about face damage. That sort of became too strong. But like one avenue is to sort of revisit the armor and health balance a bit. No, go go lower with health, but go high with armor to compensate. Um, and then you say you start with thirty health. Instead, you start with twenty, but you start with ten armor. So these always get refilled each combat, which means you have ten hit points. You have basically a buy. You, know, you have ten free. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, this issue is this makes aggro deck sort of aggro decks benefit from this as well again. Mm. Um, and it sort of breaks every card that has armor interaction. Like every card that has, if you have X armor, do Y doesn't work anymore because you always have X armor. Yeah. So, you know, so I don't really want to go there if I don't have to. And currently, I don't feel like I have to. I'm thinking about it because I'm thinking about a lot of things. But I think there's a bunch of ideas you can do with uh, interesting con. Like another idea that came out of the Discord that I think is interesting is a construct you can put on the board um, that doesn't really do anything. But if one of your followers is reduced to zero health points, he's shoveled back into your deck, which means he doesn't take a wound. He doesn't die. There's an interesting thing for a control deck, not for an aggro deck, because it costs energy to put down. As an aggro deck, you're not going to spend time for something that, you know, has a payoff later. Down. But for a control deck, it's an interesting play because um, you can lose some of your guys, you don't take wounds, and they'll be in the deck when it comes around later. Um, you'll still have people to go through. Like, you you can you can do control with a slimmer con- convoy deck. You don't need to go to 20 cards or 30 cards because it's going to be a long fight. You can slim down. And then recycle your dudes and get more value out of your good va- good people. So that seems like an interesting sort of, you know, 
solution for the to widen that corridor. And like with like the various strategies with nowhere profit, I think one thing that we didn't kind of touch on, I think is very fascinating, is is the very fact that this is a single player you know, single player like RPG style game. Like this is not a competitive multiplayer game. You know, you're not having to worry about, you know, meta or, you know, how this is going to respond to another player. And I think on one hand, that is kind of a freedom for you. Like you're not having to worry about multiplayer balance, but in the same token, you're having to deal with the balance of, you know, I have my AI or my enemy deck set up like X how will I balance this or balance the player's options so that, A, as you said earlier, like you're not railroading to one of two choices, and B, the fact that, you know, can the player still beat, you know, the AI given the change that you made with the game? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a hard question to, yeah. a- to answer. And sort of like uh, the feedback just after launch, it's sort of, oh, these bosses are too hard. Um sort of tells me that I, I, I'm i not quite there and I'm not sure it's sort of like the ideal balance we reached because yeah. part of the fun of roguelikes is the variance in your runs. You know, you can have a run, you can get the perfect equipment in the first map and then sort of build everything around it and just, you know, go to town on the enemy. You cannot. You can yep. just lose and run into shitty events and lose some people like, fuck it, table flip, let's <laughs> do it again. Um, So I think the the variance and sort of the, uh, that is part of it and needs to be part of it um, but the important part that sort of isn't there and that I think players notice and take offense with is, is, um, enemies on the same level of the same sort of weight, um, have a lot of variance. In, you know, if you cannot reasonably ex- know what you expect, there's still going to be some weirdness here and there. But if like all bosses are here and one boss is here, you will notice this boss being, yeah. if all enemies are here, but a bunch are up here, like one faction is up here. You're never going to go by that faction, you'll notice. So this is sort of an important part, sort of making sure they're all um, in a reasonable space close to each other. Um, you'll still find matchups that will just trash you because you have the wrong deck for them, or you just have some... The enemy has just luck with one card right now, and it's just a perfect counter for everything you had. That'll still happen. That's just... But that's fine. But if, you know, if, if, if a few of them are super hard and everything is super easy, that doesn't work. And I just want to stop for a quick second as a time check. We are just over an hour in. And again, as I was saying to Moran earlier, like these casts can run very long, depending upon how much we get into. I figure just, I know it's late where you're at. Um, yeah, it's gotten dark over the course of this cast. I know, that's happened on a few other uh, casts we've had where you can see the passage of time out the guest's window. But um, I figure I have a few more questions for you. I would say maybe, like, for myself, maybe another 10 to 15 minutes of that works for you. And yeah, that's fine. For some food, but yeah. keep going. <laughs> I know. We all have – I have lunch waiting for me as well. I have to learn to do these casts after eating not, or before I eat and then – or the other way around. See, I'm running on fumes myself here. But um, for the people watching us right now, I'm going to give kind of a last call for any questions. So if you have anything for more regarding Nowhere Profit, deck building style games, whatever, please get them in. Because after I'm done with my series of questions, we'll go into like our final wrap-up phase. But uh, with that said, uh, getting back to the game. <laughs> uh, one thing that we didn't touch on here, actually two aspects of Nowhere Problems Design that I wanted to bring up here 
The first thing is the kind of the leader deck or kind of like your, I guess, quote unquote, spell cards in Nowhere Prophet. Because mm-hmm. we've spent the last hour talking about the people in your convoy. But where did the idea of like your command deck or your leader deck come in with the design? Well, it's sort of, um, I assume it's hard to say because it's sort of at some point the combat system is very different. Um, I always liked the idea of the split of sort of two decks. Um, because it's sort of, this is your prophet and these are your people and sort of having them separate felt good to me. Um, and I always wanted to sort of, um, not have the player need to fiddle with too much. Like, um, between combats, but before combat starts, you don't need to t- think about all decks, all the things. You need to think about your convoy deck, and that's usually it. If you want to be fancy, you can swap out some, but that's very chunky and simple to sort of conceptual. Um, so I wanted these decks uh, to behave very differently. Like you can in the convoy deck, you can pull in people, put them in, put them out at whenever you want. You can go down to zero cards and run start into a combo without any cards on your hand in the convoy deck. If you want to be fancy, go for it. Um, the hermit convoy just has one card to start with. Why not? Uh, but for the leader deck. I wanted it to be very sort of static and slow to change, so you wouldn't have to worry about it between combats. It was more like, oh yeah, I got something new, let's put it in, let's go. And that's sort of where this, this sort of very very different deck building systems came from. Like, I mean, the um, the, the, the combo deck is more like Hearthstone or Magic, you have, this is your collection, this is your deck, just build it. Uh, and the leader deck is more like uh, Puzzle Quest, Slay the Spire. This is a deck where adding and removing is something that happens slowly over time and it transforms instead of being completely replaced. Um, and it just sort of been there. Okay. And I like what you said in terms of having like, essentially you have almost like two different styles of deck building in Nowhere Profit. The, your followers, again, like that, and actually that takes me to know one of those very interesting parallels of these kinds of games. Like, when you play a game like, say, The Spire, you want your deck to be as lean and as focused as possible. Even if, you know, a five-card deck may sound crazy, but if that's a five-card combo that works every time, you know, go nuts there. But with something like Nowhere Problem, you said with your followers, you don't want a very lean deck there, or at least you don't want to aim for that, because if you only have five people in your deck and they all have wounds on them, you're, you kind of lose the board control game at that point. Yeah, but, I mean, it's still true. You don't want... You can put into up to 30 cards into your mm-hmm. deck, um, uh, but in most of the fights, they're not going to be long enough yeah. for you to make use of other 30 cards. So don't. Go with 10, 12, 15 cards that should last you most of the smaller fights. If you're going to hit a boss, up it to 20, 25. Um, you still want to have a slim deck, because a slim deck's always good. You don't need a lot of shitty cards. You can put in the best ones. You have more control of what I get. You have your, the chance that you have the card you need when you need it. So you always want to go as low as you can. Um, but again, yeah, in Noah Prophet, if you run out of cards, you have a problem. Slay the yeah. Spy recycles your five-card yeah. deck. So if you have your five cards, you're set. Yeah. Um, so that's, you don't want to go down as low. Same with your leader card deck. You start with 12 um, and you can delete cards. And in general, you, whenever you can delete a card, you want to delete. Um, because you want to put it down and you may want to sort of go a detour and buy some extra points to delete more cards. Um, that's really valuable. But this is something that's super difficult for players. I think. Um, players that don't have experience with card games, they go yeah. like, all right, I have 20 people in my deck. Oh, I got somebody new. Let's put them in. Mm. That yeah. is okay. Um, and that's perfectly valid, but it's hard because do I balance for these people or do I balance for the people that keep the slim deck? Which is sort of where different difficulty levels come in. Yeah. On easy, you should be able to win if you play like that. On burned, um, probably not. 
And that's, as you were just saying there, Martin, that's very fascinating when we talk about kind of the different skill levels of somebody who plays a deck building or a CCG-based game. Because, like, again, like with Slay the Spire, like, for myself at this point, I'm like, you know, is that card great? Okay. Does it work in my deck? Scrap it, you know. Get it out of there. I don't need any more. But then you have people who will think, you know, oh my god, it's an amazing card. You know, let me just keep adding that card in and in. And now we have, like, a 30, 40 card deck. And it's very hard, I think, for these kinds of games to kind of, like, train the player in terms of what's considered either, I wouldn't say the best way of playing, but at least a more optimized way of playing. Yeah, I mean, that's this a very unintuitive part of... I've picked up Paper Magic again, like, a year ago, after, like, a break. Um, and a bunch of friends sort of started doing the same, some for the first time, some brief stint in the childhood or something. And a friend of mine, a uh, fellow game designer, he knows how this shit works. But his decks are always bigger than 60 cards because he has trouble letting go of cards. He's like, oh, but I want to put this in there. I want to put this in there. <laughs> and, you know, because it's unintuitive. You, you want a lot of the cool stuff. Yeah. And in, in, in a deck building game, you need to get rid of them, some of the cool stuff to have this other cool stuff <laughs> that's fitting a little better right now. Uh, and that's a hard choice to make, you know, because, and, and I think they sort of come up with this just right now. I think the key part why it's so hard is because as humans, sort of like thinking of of um, psychology and how we work, one of the things we're really bad at is giving up options. Sort of famous experiment, the way you can click on two doors, and whenever you click on a door, you get I think I think one door gets you twenty bucks, one door gets you ten bucks. But whenever you click on a door, the other door gets go smaller. So you click twenty bucks, twenty bucks, twenty bucks, twenty bucks, and before the ten bucks door vanishes, you click the ten bucks door, so it goes big again. Mm. But you have a limited amount of clicks. So this was a stupid idea. You just paid ten bucks to keep this door open. Mm -hmm. um, but there's something that's wired in us. We really we have trouble letting go of options. Yeah. You know, we want to keep our options open. We want to have them all on the table, and that's what's happening there. Not putting that in means I'm gonna take out the option of playing that card when I maybe need it, uh, uh, and that's hard for us. It's hard for us to sort of go, yeah, this is an option. But I'm just going to close that door. And what you just said there about if I give her something, maybe I'll need it later. That is just like the perfect encapsulation of like the hoarder syndrome. When we talk about a lot of RPG based games where, you know, I'm going to keep this healing potion until literally the final boss because you never know. I may need it at some point and then I never play it. And yeah, like yeah, it is I mean, a look, look at my vault in Destiny 2. <laughs> it's filled with armor pieces I will never wear. Why? Yeah. Just need to delete all of them, but I can't. I've had to... It, it has been a struggle. Like, people who've watched me play, like, ARPGs know that I just have, like... I have, like, the hoarder, you know, like, fill your house up to, like, this roof with stuff. Like, that's my inventory in just about every ARPG I play. Diablo, Grimdawn, whatever. And it's taken me a very long time to kind of force myself off of that. And now these days, I'm like, is this part of my build? Nope. Get rid of it. Like at this, I may have gone too overboard now. That's now I'm just like, I, what? That's part of the journey to mastery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, judging the value of the game pieces um, in regards to what you already have. When you're playing out early, you, you just want you're everything. not good at that. Yeah, you're just putting yeah, everything. It's cool, it's powerful. Let's put it in. But later on, you, you're good enough. You know all the pieces. You know, even if it's just you memorize the cards, you go like, all right, this is good. But there's other good stuff sort of compared to the plays I've made. I don't need this right now. This is just something that comes with experience. Yeah. And as we were saying, it just is a very, it's very tough to kind of guide the player towards that. Yeah. Yeah, I think the game's not of no profit isn't 
Like, I think the tutorial is good. It sort of works for most of the things. Some parts be better. Uh, people still have some, some trouble picking up positioning mechanics, but that's fine. Um, they eventually do, and it doesn't stop them from playing. And then they go like, oh, aha moment, and sort of manage the positioning better. better. That's some, one of the skills that people need to unlock. They play for a while, uh, figuring out how positioning works yes. and how to interact with it well. In the beginning, it's like, why do, why does it work like this? I don't understand it. And at some point, it goes, ah, oh, yes. tactics. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a really sort of big moment. Uh, but I think, yeah, the game doesn't do a lot to help you deck build. There's a rule book in there that has a section of strategies. In the section of strategies, there's some deck building, which says, hey, don't make your deck too big. Um, but the game could do a more proactive job of that. Um, at some point, it go, could go, hey, um, you're editing your follow deck. Keep in mind, keep it slim, mm-hmm. which people don't read and then do any, whatever they <laughs> want to do anyway. But it could maybe do something more there. It's actually a good... Good thing we're talking about. Let me just make a note real quick. Because planning on... Give me a second. I need to m- m- notes, otherwise everything is gone out of my head. <laughs> See, folks, um, we do live game development right here when we have these yeah. podcasts. Um, so what I want to do is um, I want to do some quality of life improvements. And one of these is a follower screen. You see your cards and your deck. And there's a bunch of filters. That, and the filters are shit. They don't work. They never work well. I always wanted to make them better. Never had time to. Uh, I'm going to do that now. I have a bunch of ideas of sort of how to change it and what to change. And I think... Um, what I want to do now, after we talked about, when you open the screen to sort of show your filters, you also see some more detailed sets of the deck, and then use some way to give you feedback, I'm not sure how yet, on the size of your deck. In sort of like, if your deck is very sm- is too small, you're going to get like a hint of uh, dangerously, dangerously few followers. If you have a huge deck, it goes like, maybe, you know, unlikely to find the right cards or something. Maybe it's like a, a red to green you know, mm-hmm. lights or something, but some sort of feedback to give you an idea what the thing you made there does random wise to give, to incentivize people to go for smaller decks. Maybe sometimes, mm-hmm. maybe that's something I could go in there. I, you see, I'm doing a lot of question marks and uh, <laughs> thinking out loud, but if there'd be a place for it, that'd be the place. Okay. And it'd be better than a tutorial because it'd be something people can see and l- pick up and learn without somebody going, eh, eh, small deck. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. Go over well. Yes. Again, like we started talking about tutorial design, that's another few hours, I think, easily. But yeah, again, it's very hard, I think, to kind of train players on these kinds of games, like just any kind of like abstracted based design. And again, like I feel like an hour long rant in me, I'll make this quick here. But you always run into that risk of, you know, if I do something and it causes me to lose like 20, 30 turns later, how am I ever going to connect those two dots to each other? And like as we say, well, I mean, I mean that, that does that happen though? I mean, clearly you can have a misplay, and then it, mm-hmm. it that be the one health that by which you lose at the end. But in most of the cases, because you're paying attention, mm-hmm. you roughly know what's happening and why you failed. If yeah. you failed, maybe the enemy just had the right card. Maybe you got unlucky. Maybe oh shit, I should have done this in another order. Yeah. And now ah fuck, and then you die. And you know, you because learn the game. Compared to Hearthstone, which I think is a really good card game, but I hate it because you know, a Prophet has a lot more sort of determinism. Um, there's still, you know, you can still top deck or be top decked. It just happens. That's part of a card game. But a lot more of the sort of the, the things happening in sequence are predictable, which means you know what's happening and what's going to happen. And that means you can plan your turn precisely, you know? Part of the game is your turn starts, see your cards, you see the field, what is my play? Mm-hmm. That's a big part of the game. This is, every turn is a new puzzle, 
and in with it, which you have to find the perfect arrangement of your pieces and also the perfect sequence of your but but because you you engage with this so actively you have to i think you usually know what what caused your death it's frustrating if it was some random card but in most cases if you're to blame because you made a bad play or because you know mm-hmm. you usually know it it's difficult with a deck because you know a big deck doesn't feel like a bad thing and the sort of the, the randomness in the deck is really hard to feel but i don't think that's impossible uh, i look at stuff like that as uh, user interface uh, problems and um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else to say here. Um, I, I think just like two set, two more questions for you, and then go into like our just like to wrap it up. <laughs> um, one thing that I wanted to touch on, just to clarify for people watching us either live or recorded, that when you talk about like or the cast, like stuff like control deck, aggro deck, stuff like that. With Nowhere Profit, is that more or less like kind of like the faction you choose at the beginning, or is that kind of like the cards that you'll pick up along the way as you play? That's sort of a little bit of so the, all of the sort of convoys you can pick have. I think the first one is just sort of just sort of very general, but many of the convoys have sort of a theme that's sort of very aggro, cheap followers. You lose quickly, you'll take a lot of wounds, more tempo. One is sort of slower, more controlled. One is sort of themed around drones. One is around beasts. Um, so you have sort of different starting decks, and they make up a, 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 a big chunk of your deck for a while. Um, they give you a good starting identity that'll that'll last. And that doesn't mean that you'll play all of these cards by the end, um, but it's enough to color your your playstyle a lot. But it's not the only thing because the cards you start with, a lot of them are sort of underpriced or not quite good. Um, you don't have a lot of rares or like even legendaries, so a lot of cards you'll find will also be flat out better, which you'll then sort of swap out. It also sort of at the same time, while they're sort of they're themed, they don't have super strong synergies to start out with. So um, one thing that sort of often happens, I feel, is you find a good piece of equipment that has some, some critical effect there. You go like, all right, this is cool to combo with. And then you have a bunch of other pieces in play, either in your deck or somewhere else um, that interact with that. And then you go and build a build around. And then sort of depends if you find the right thing for your starting situation. But it's sort of like a mixture. Your starting convoy colors your, your initial options, but there's enough change across a run that you're not pigeonholed. And I think that's kind of like what a Shark was saying in chat a few minutes ago about like card games. Find that key, find that strategy or combo that you like, and then kind of working or building yourself towards that. And I've gone, I think, yeah. a lot more that way too in recent years of... You know, I, I said earlier, like, a, whole, a good point about a lot of these games is that there's a lot of cool stuff you can do in them. So, typically, I'll find that one cool thing that I really like, and that will be my focus. Because I've kind of moved away, like, for myself in a lot of these games, away from the jack-of-all-trades kind of thing, where, as we said earlier, like, I'm just going to take this cool thing and this cool thing, I'm just going to put all my deck, and it'll be nothing but cool things, and it'll be best. No, it doesn't work that way. It'll just be just a hodgepodge of choices and nothing really synergizes together. This is actually something, like, um, just not long before launch, I changed the equipment system into what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the, in the same sort of vein, had to redo the entire equipment content, um, which was a very good choice, even though it was a lot of um, a lot of work and sort of last-minute work even, um, because it for, for, for one, the content... Um, was sort of a lot built with a lot more of sort of like at this then very very you know formed pool of cards in mind and a lot of sort of the effects were built with synergy in mind so um that sort of encourages that but also i think it's it's really good 
to teach people how to do this. Because you find an equipment and people are looking for combos. Like they they feel awesome if they discover a combo. They go, oh, this card. Oh, awesome. I need to try this. Um, and the, the, the items help sort of catalyze that. You know, you get this item and you go like, oh, I have this passive bonus I can trigger four times. What can I trigger it with? And then you go like, all right, I want to pry this. I have a bunch of people around. Let's put them in and see what this does. And then sort of, because these items are sort of relatively strong, some of them very dependent on context, um, but that invites sort of exploration and sort of experimentation. And I think that's sort of a really good, uh, really good change to the game and sort of helps people build weird and quirky and fun and different decks. And I think with that, again, we could spend like the next hour or so talking about things. But um, I, here's the final question for you, and then we'll kind of talk about what you have planned, and that will end the cast. I just want to ask you very quickly, in terms of like the actual board design of Nowhere Profit, did that go through like many iterations or changes? Not that much, actually. Like, I mean, um, the size of the board is sort of dependent on the, on the pacing and the amount of the units you have. Um, I mean, theoretically, we could have two high and five wide board, but that just wouldn't work. Um, so if the, the the size of the board was was sort of fixed relatively quickly. Sort of the possible options: three by three, two by four, three by four, two by five, three by five. Um, because more than three wide just gets empty, and more than and less than three high just is too tight. Um, could be doable for like one special event, but not as sort of a default. Um, and then. Uh, it was sort of figuring out how to place obstacles on this. There was some iteration there because an, an early algorithm just was very haphazard of it. It was just sort of randomly sprinkling them in, um, which led to obstacles in the first column and obstacles anywhere else sort of having the same weight, but they have very different gameplay in, in implications. Um, obstacles in the first column can block people from attacking, so they're sort of, they box you in. And starting on a field with like all your first row block would, sort of prevent you from attacking. Actually, something I'm looking at at the same time also. So that went through a bunch of iterations and then sort of figuring out how many sort of hazards and advantages to put in and sort of that changed at some point. The sort of lootables came into combat, which if you destroy it and give you an out-of-combat bonus, which are fun and nice and interesting and because they sort of want, make you want to play suboptimally. Can I spare an attack to get this? <laughs> uh, and that sort of, you know, changed the, the, the way things are placed on the grid. But the grid itself was, was there pretty early. There was yeah. a bunch of iteration with how attacking works in the grid. Um, some of that can be found in the daily uh, challenge mutators. Just briefly, because I'm getting really hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> um, one, one iteration I had was you could, you wouldn't attack a unit. You would always attack a row and you would hit the first thing in that row. And if there was nothing, you would hit the enemy leader, uh, which is functionally very similar to what it is now. Um, you, you know, you can only hit the first one in each row and whatever. Um, the difference being that it sort of was differently uh, um, conceptualized. Um, but the, the the big one is you could only attack the leader if there was one empty row you could sort of push through. Um, and that led to the winning strategy always being punch in a hole and then hit just hit the leader. Because hitting the leader became this very rare thing. You didn't want the enemy to build up too many units and then it was super hard to hit them. And fights would draw on. So you'd always go face damage as soon as you could, which means um, you would not interact with the board as much as I want you to, which is sort of why um, I moved that out and sort of put it into Mutator. But you can always attack the enemy leader unless there's a taunt unit. But that means it's not... You don't lose the opportunity to attack the leader if you don't 
use it right now. So you can freely interact with the board or with the leader, whatever makes sense right now. Yeah, and again, like, we could spend, I don't, oh, my voice is dying too. We could spend a lot of time talking about kind of like how the board and the cards interact with each other. But I know we are kind of over our time, and I'm sure you have to go get some neat. So I think we will wrap things up here. So for people watching us right now, what do you have planned next for Nowhere Profit? You talked a little bit about like quality of life issues and patches and stuff like that. I mean, I write about it pretty candidly on the Steam announcements. So if you're interested in sort of what's happening, that's a good way to, to go also to Discord. Um, again, currently... I'm sort of looking at quality of life changes. I'm looking at uh, balance, um, which means I've, I'm sort of the equipment powers will probably get very likely get an energy cost, which allows me to balance them better, make some of them stronger, but also more expensive, you know, widen the design space a bit there. I, I initially had a bunch of sort of different iterations there, ended up not having cost and not having an amount of uses per combat because I just wanted to simplify things. But at this point, I feel like I need it back in to sort of give give enough space to the possible possible skills. Um, then there's positive life stuff, like the follow view. There's also the, the, the idea of sort of like the, the board control corridor widening, which probably requires me to change, update, or replace some content, maybe add some new stuff. Uh, not sure which form that'll take. I'm sort of still shopping around for ideas, making a lot of notes, trying to figure out how to, how to do yeah, so that's that's sort of the immediate sort of next couple of weeks, August, yeah. September. Um, there's going to be a console version in 2020, so I've got some work to do on that. I'm not going to do the entire porting, but I'm going to make sure that good and plays well. That's going to be some work. And I don't know, I would love to do some, some maybe some DLC or maybe some free updates. I'm not sure if the game's successful enough to do a lot of free stuff. Um, I have ideas for classes, you know, new different leaders, more convoys. Um, there's cool ideas for keywords and more followers. This, you know, it's a card game. You can put in stuff forever and it <laughs> wouldn't get boring. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm not com- committing on any sort of promises in terms of content I'll add, but I'd love to. I'm sort of right. doing more immediate balance and quality. It seems more, more useful right now. All right, cool. And I think with that, again, I can feel like we're both starting to run out of steam here. I think that will probably be a good place to... My voice is dying, too. That's a good place to end things for the cast. So, uh, for people watching, do you have anything you'd like to say to any fans watching to end the cast on? Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you thank you for playing. Thank you for watching. Thank you for supporting. Um, I've, I've been reminded by uh, my, my very, uh, very good publisher that I should remind people of... Please write a Steam review because reviews are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, they do a lot for visibility for players and for Steam. So if you haven't, please do. But just thank you for playing. All right. And do you have any social media you like to plug before we say goodnight? Um, the Discord, as mentioned, um, I think it's discordgg profit. Then my personal Twitter, which is mnerrorcar, hit after me telling you that. And then there's at profit, which is the Twitter of the game. Which is not quite as active as too many Twitter accounts. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Morton, it was a pleasure hanging out with you today. Definitely best of luck with what comes next with Nowhere Profit. It's a fascinating game. I hope we hear a lot more from you in the future. Thank you. I hope so, too. All right. So for everybody watching this live record, we're going to end things here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out our Discord channel link down below. Check out Nowhere Profit on Steam now. I'll have a, by the time you're watching this recorded, my first look video should be already up. If you're watching this live, it should be going up in a few days. 
But if you're a developer working on your own game in the future and like to come on for a cast, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I'll be back later tonight for our regular game streaming. But thanks again for tuning into this cast and come back for daily discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where some of the art and science of games. Until next time, have a great night, folks, and I will talk to you later.